So last week, um, I talked about the greatest risk, the greatest risk when it comes to joy. And towards the end of the sermon, I talked about how self-preservation is just so counterintuitive to the way of Christ, that the ways in which we live to preserve ourselves and to protect how we are to feel and how we are to move in this world and how we are to follow Christ, it really, it really does not, it's not compatible. Um, it will require us to step outside of ourselves to follow Christ, to risk something in our lives in the way of following Jesus. And I think sometimes we see that, especially in moments of crisis, where everybody just wants to um, hoard for themselves and protect whatever circle that they have going on. But it's in those moments, I think, the most that we need to step outside of ourselves and to take risks for the sake of others. Because it's only in being together that we get through. And we've seen this happen throughout history. We see it played out where when people become more isolated and go into their corners, it doesn't always work out so well. But when people come together, that is when we see flourishing. That is when we see beauty happening in the world. When people take a risk of getting to know their neighbor, right? And one of the neighborly stories that we talked about last week is the story, the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, right? Which the subtext of it was that an unlikely person in that time did something that uh, exhibited the character of God. And Jesus is using this subversive story to really inform the people then, but also for us today, what it means to follow the way of Christ. The Samaritan was one who um, exhibited um, the kingdom of God. He demonstrated what it meant to live a life in the kingdom of God, the way and the path of God. And as Alethea said earlier, what, what is the common thing that we pray in the Lord's Prayer when we learn over kids? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's this way of orienting ourselves to the kingdom of God. And when we say the kingdom of God, sometimes it can seem like a very um, esoteric and kind of, uh, you know, just uh, flight in the sky kind of thing where it's like, what are we actually talking about here? The kingdom of God simply is this. The kingdom of God is not an escape plan to get to heaven for us, right? Like it's not this place that we go to to escape all of our troubles here on this earth when we fly away. The kingdom of God is a way of how we see that the world is not as it should be. The world is in chaos at times, and this is not the way that God intends it. But we who are called by God, the people who bear the name of Christ, are to be the ones who help to establish the way that the world should be, the way that God intends for this world to be here and now. And so like we've been talking about for the past couple of months, happiness versus joy right? This, this is the kingdom that we're talking about. Joy is grounded in the kingdom of God. It is not temporary. It is not circumstantial, right? It is grounded in that which is eternal. It is grounded in the hope of who God is and who we are to God. So again, this series, Joy, as we've been going through the book of Philippians, it's all about understanding how joy is not about getting our every desire, but it's about finding contentment in every season of life. And today, I want to talk from the theme, the upside-down mindset. As we lean into this idea of the kingdom, how we can have a heavenly mindset for earthly good, right? And so I want to begin in Philippians chapter 3, but before we get there, I just want to explain to you that Paul is starting to make a shift here, as you've been reading along with us in Philippians, that he's really starting to emphasize now to the people, listen, don't get distracted. There's a lot happening right now, but stay the course, and he offers his life here in this chapter, chapter 3, as an example. And he's saying, emulate me, and we'll hear more of that as we read on. 
So I want you to really, again, continue to listen to, way, to the way that Paul writes in this letter and listen to the very uh, much pastoral tone that he has, this affection that he has for the church in Philippi, right? So Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 16, Paul writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ, took, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet taken hold of, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of this then, all of us then, who are mature should strive, should take such things, a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So when we look at verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. And yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And some may ask, well, why are you leaning into that kind of suffering? Why are you leaning into that kind of pursuit into resurrection, death, dying, and coming back to life? You know the saying that we commonly say, everybody won't go to heaven, but nobody won't dead, right? This is the whole idea that Paul is saying is like, listen, we have to go through the trials. It's not about going around it, but we participate with Christ in his death, knowing that death does not have the final say, but knowing that resurrection is to come, right? And when we read on in verses 12 and 14, even in his instructions to the people, Paul says, listen, I attain all these things yet. God's still working on me, right? On my best day, God is still working on me. And so here we really start to see Paul admonishing and challenging the church in pursuit, not arrival, of God, right? And I think a lot of times we as Christians think that that is the goal, is to get to an end point in our faith. That if I do a certain amount of things, if I pray this amount of times a day, or if I act this particular way, that yes, I will arrive at a point where God is pleased with me and I am holy, whatever that means, right? But I think sometimes God is saying to us, what would happen if you stop running ahead of me and walk with me, right? What would it look like if you just pace yourself and know that I'm right beside you? You don't have to run to some point you think you have to go to to receive my love and my grace and my mercy for your life. When we read on verse 15, he talks about the, um, this idea of unity, right? He says, all of us who are mature should take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. God is going to clear all of that up. And so he's again pu uh, pushing the people in this, in this sense of pursuit of God and pursuit of God in unity, right? Not uniformity. And a lot of times when we try to pursue this uniformity, it ends up causing us to put our guards up, right? And we're always concerned and consumed with being right instead of being righteous or just to the people around us. And so Paul here is encouraging his people, do not get distracted in this season. Don't fracture yourselves in this community right now. Now more than ever is a time for you to band together and to stay strong in Christ. And so he continues on in chapter 3, verses 17 through 20. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. 
just as you have, just as you have us as, as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at verse 17, right, where he says, join together and following my example, um, it's very easy to read out and think, oh, Paul is really thinking a lot of himself here, right? But what he's really saying is not trying to elevate himself as this exemplar, but he's saying, come along with me. Walk along this journey that I'm on because I too am on a journey. Know of where I came from. It was not a pretty place, but look where God has brought me now. And you can walk the same journey with me as well. Faith is something that we do together. I think that's one of the things that we kind of see communicated through here. If you grew up in a traditional church or at least had some proximity around it, you may have heard the word liturgy, right? Where it's just this order of service and practices that people do when they gather for worship. The word liturgy, the actual spirit behind that word is not just things to do. The idea is the work of the people. That, that's how it's commonly defined, is the work of the people. So it's not the pastor and the priest or the choir and the worship leaders doing all the work. It's the gathering of believers who participate in this liturgy and worshiping God together. Right? And so Paul says, come along with me. And then he also gives them this dose of reality that, yes, there are things happening on this earth right now, but don't get distracted on everything you see. Do the work, but don't get distracted of what's going to happen ultimately, because he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And what he's saying is we don't follow the way of the world, right? This is some of this kingdom language coming in. And, and by the way, when we say that we don't follow the ways of this world, this is not about culture wars, Right? This is not about the church versus the world, and we have it all together, and the world needs to get their act together, right? This is not about that. And I think a lot of times as followers of Christ and Christians really kind of go out there and give out the message that um, y'all are not good. Y'all need to come on our side, cross this side of the fence. And a lot of times we define ourselves in opposition of others. Well, I am because I'm not like them, right? I am because they are different, they don't have the right answers, I do, right? And that's how we define ourselves. But, but I think what Paul is really pushing us to say is, where are we pledging our allegiance to? Are we pledging our allegiance into being right and to fighting and combating what others are doing? Or are we pledging allegiance to following the way of God and love and mercy and grace? Are we submitting ourselves to these things? Which again, it's gonna stretch us and it's gonna be a risk for us to take. These ought to be the markers of who we are as people of Christ not the ways in which we differ from other people, right? Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that we are a people of the already and the not yet. We are a people who understand that God is doing a work now, but we look forward to the future where Christ will come again and reconcile all things. We do that during the Easter time and we do that during the Christmas Lent season or uh, Advent season, right? Verse 20, when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Eagerly await. Yes, Christ came to do a work on this earth, but there is more to come. Full, redemptive work of Christ is still to come. 
And in the meantime, right, those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ are not to sit on our hands and wait. We ought to get to work while we are waiting for God to come back and do this final work. We get to the joyful work of making heaven feel a little, earth feel a little bit more like heaven, right? You know, I think about this even sometimes when I go on social media, again, been on it more than I care to be on it. Uh, that's some work I need to do on myself. <laughs> but um, I think about this a lot when you see breaking news happen um, and then there's a comment section and people just are typing away, right? Just go and add it on the comment section. And a lot of what I see is people saying, oh boy, you know, we really got to pray. We, we, something got to happen. This country got to turn on. We got to turn back to God. We got to go back to the old landmark, right? And listen, here's the thing. I'm a preacher. I'm a church worker. I love prayer. Prayer is great. I think it's wonderful. I think everybody should do it. But if we don't put action behind that prayer, if we are not the ones putting our hands to the soil and cultivating the things that we pray for, what are we doing? We are placed here on this earth to be ambassadors for God, to bring hope and healing to this world. And so, yes, we ought to pray. But we ought to pray in such a way that our lives will now produce what it is that we are praying for. We want to say, God, we need hope in this country. Okay, well, how are you giving hope to your neighbor? How are you giving hope to somebody going through a rough period of time? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? That the, the, the prayer is not just something that we do and we hand it off to God. God says, okay, I hear you. Now, here's what I want you to do about it. Right. Dallas Willard, one of the great theologians in his book, Divine Conspiracy, said this. Quote, you are really walking in the good news of the kingdom if you can go with confidence to any of the hopeless people around you and effortlessly convey assurance that they can now enter a blessed life with God. If you can go to the people around you and just because it's an overflow of your heart, that is the way of the kingdom. And so for us today, I thought about this as I was prepping the message and this verse came to me last minute. It's a verse that we often quote, but it has major implications for how we live our lives as people of faith. Matthew 6 and 33, Jesus says, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be given to you as well. But seek first God's kingdom. And so as we've been singing all this morning songs about the pursuit of God and wanting more of God, this is really where we ought to land in the kingdom of God. Again, Paul is not saying that you ought to arrive at some point. He's saying continue to seek God, pursue God. And as you draw near to God, God draws near to you, right? So I think of three things as I think about the way that Paul talks to the church in Philippi, three things that we ought to seek. First thing um, that we ought to seek is resurrection, Seek resurrection in the world. You know, there's this prosperity gospel going around that if you just pray to God and you do whatever magic things you have to do to make God like you, that God's going to give you every wish and every desire of your heart, right? And, and we see so many people getting swept up in that and then just washed out in a wave of disappointment because God did not turn out the way that somebody told them that God works, right? To know Christ is to know Christ not just when things are good, <laughs> but to know God through every season and the good, the bad, the ugly, and the in-between when you don't even know how to name it, right? To know his resurrection is to see how God can bring what was proclaimed dead back to life. 
That is who we are as a people. We believe that dead things come back to life, that the, the things that are meant to flourish and bring hope and healing to this world, those things can never stay dead even though the world wants them to. That God says that I speak a better word of life, of healing, of wholeness for my people and for this world. And so just as God breathed life into the chaos in, Gen in Genesis and created the entire cosmos, so does God breathe life into our chaos in our lives, that God can bring those things back to life as well and can bring flourishing out of the situations that we find ourselves in. So seek resurrection. That's one of the things. The second thing is this, seek unity. Seek unity. So Jesus, when he knew that he was about to die in the Gospel of John, he knew that things were coming to a close. And there's a section in John that scholars call the farewell discourse where Jesus is pretty much preparing his disciples and his followers by telling them everything that's to come. And he's saying to them, now all of these things are going to happen, but don't freak out, right? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. That death does not have the final word, that destruction does not have the final word, that pain does not have the final word, but God does. And one of the things that he does for his disciples is that he prays for them. It's something I think that we gloss over a lot is the fact that Jesus actually took time to pray for his disciples. In John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. His prayer is that his people may not be the same, not be identical, but that they may be what? One in God. Finding this common ground. You know, I, I just think it's so wild that God created such a diversity in humanity, but also in creation. That when we look around at all the different species and all of the different types of things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, of things that we don't even take notice, that somehow we think that everything has to fit into one particular mold. That somehow God is not big enough to hold the diversity of what God created, right? And so what does that look like for our lives that even though we may not agree with one another, yet we can still be in communion with God, right? Be in communion with one another. Making room for us to be one, so as we seek resurrection, as we seek unity, the final thing that we ought to seek or seek with is seek with expectation. Seek God with expectation. When you expect in something, you make room for it, right? Like, like when you want to go out and have a really good meal, you don't spoil your appetite during that day. You hold off and you say, oh, boy, I can't wait till I go to this restaurant. I can't wait till I go and cook to, and be ready for this meal, Right? When you order in packages, well, maybe some of y'all have a bunch of packages in your closet already and you need to make room, right? But you, you, you're so anticipating, you're checking Go Postal, you're checking Blue Post, you're checking all these places to see, and you're waiting with bated breath. When is my package coming, right? We make room for the things that we expect. And the question for us is, are we doing the same in our life with Christ, in our walk with God? Are we expecting, anticipating God to be with us, to walk alongside us in this journey of life? I think about how so many of us, I'm talking to myself, want a move of God, but will not take a move ourselves, right? 
I, I think about this thing that we say in my small group a lot is that we are living in the days that we once prayed for, right? That sometimes when we stop and take inventory, the thing that you once prayed for is actually the days that you're walking in. And when I reflected on that, I also thought about the ways in which I wasn't doing the work at one point in season of my life. That where I am today, I could not contain it because I was not ready for what God was wanting to do in my life. I had not done the work. I had not prepared my heart and my soul for everything that God had for me. And so sometimes it took me a little bit longer to get in the journey where I am, but I'm still on the journey. We're still there. Like Paul says, God is not done with me yet. Not that I have attained all of this. But understanding that we see God with expectation, that we prepare, we make room for what God wants to do in our lives. It's not enough to just like the idea of what God wants to do in our lives. It's about taking initiative as well. So seek resurrection, seek unity, and seek all of these things first with expectation that God is going to do something in your life and that you can do great things for God. The late Dr. Miles Monroe, I can tell you, has done some amazing work in talking about the kingdom. And I really encourage you to go and read some of his books about the kingdom and how he talks, and he really unpacks his metaphor so well. One of the things that he says in his book, Rediscovering the Kingdom, Ancient Hope for Our 21st Century World, he says this, quote, kingdom citizens, kingdom citizenship is a spiritual reality, but it is also a mentality. As believers, we already have the spirit of God. But we need to learn the mind and the heart of God, end quote, right? So as I begin to wrap this up, I think about how the kingdom requires a complete mindset shift, right? Like as Dr. Miles said, it it requires us to really shift how we think and how we feel in our hearts towards those around us and to the way that we see God. And we don't do that just once, right? We do that throughout our lifespan, Because the way that we see God at five is different than at 15, is different at 25, and so on. And so this is constant journey. Again, we are not arriving at a point, but we are continuing the work, John Wesley would say, of sanctification, of ongoing perfection in God. That we never arrive to a point of being perfect, but we strive towards the mark, as Paul says. And when we align ourselves with the kingdom, we live in the joy of the Lord. We live in the joy of God's promises for us. We can live a life of joy here and now, right? It's not just for when we fly away to glory. God freely gives us this opportunity to do this work of living in joy, to to sharing joy with others by following the way of the kingdom of God, knowing that the world is not as it should be, but God is calling us to be channels and change agents here and now. One last set of verses I want to read for us as we close. So Moses in Deuteronomy is moving on, um, and he is passing off the people of Israel to be led by Joshua and Aaron and the next generation of leaders. And he's pretty much preaching this very, very long sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But some of the closing verses are, are so powerful and so important because it's almost like God gives us a cheat code in this life, right? So this is Moses speaking on behalf of God. He says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Here's the important part. Now choose life. Choose life so that you and your children may live. 
and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says, I give you the choices before you. You can still choose, but what I'm telling you to do is choose life. That's the road that you definitely want to go down. The road of life is the, in me is the way of joy, is the way of peace. It is all of these things that Paul later goes on to talk about in the book of Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, right? All these different components of it. Choose life here and now. The choice is up to us. Where does our allegiance lie? Does it lie in a moment of fleeting frivolity and fun and happiness, whatever that may look like for us in any given moment? Or is it grounded in the promises of God? That God never leaves nor forsakes. That God promises to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, as the psalmist says. Say it every week. Choosing joy is not easy. It feels very upside down, actually, the way that we as people of God find joy. But at the end of the day, it's a choice that's worth making. Let's pray. Oh God, we remember that as we go throughout this life, everything is not as it should be. There is pain. There is suffering. There is malice. There is hatred. There's, there's so many things that we could list and name as wrong with this world. But God, we ask that you would remind us, even in those moments, to see the ways in which you are already at work and to join you in that work of bringing the kingdom here on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. To give this earth a touch of heaven that people could feel relief from their sorrow, from their struggles, that we can feel that for ourselves as we go out into the world. We ask, oh God, that you would remind us this week to be ambassadors for your kingdom, to be the ones who bear your name with pride but also humility, knowing that you have called us into a work that requires us not to run ahead of you, but a work that calls us, oh God, to walk beside you and to feel you guiding us every step of the way. We thank you for the kingdom that you are trying to establish. And we know, oh God, that the work that is to come, we wait with bated breath. We wait with anticipation for you to come and to reconcile all things to yourself. Thank you, oh God. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that is always available to us. May we bear the name of your kingdom well in this world, that people may see your light shining through us, that they may give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.